Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. Friends, my guest today is Senda Leno, designer of Love and Justice and Turning Point, co-host of the Pandas Talking Games podcast, and perhaps most famously, co-creator of the podcast She's a Super Geek, an RPG actual play show that highlights women GMs. As someone for whom GMing is still terrifying, although slightly less terrifying than the first time I did it, I thought it might be interesting to have her on to talk about what motivated her to create a show like that and what it means to her in the context of gaming and the context of her life. We ended up going kind of deep in a really lovely, meaningful way. I hope this episode speaks to you, and if it doesn't, I hope you learn something new. trying to go for but I was trying to tell him that I you know was gonna kick the door <laughs> like you do in a dungeon you kick the door right and I I very firmly kicked my microphone stand wow it was it's just some foley work it. there it was quite funny. yeah <laughs> uh it's like do I leave this in as a sound effect or do I just fix it yeah I you just make it. that go away I put it in yeah I put it in the outtakes that's what outtakes are for. If if you knew how much work a podcast is, truly, especially an actual play podcast, it, would, would that have deterred you from, from doing it at all? That's a really interesting question. I haven't even considered that I could exist. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm literally having trouble envisioning my life without doing an actual play podcast. So it's hard for me to even think that it would have phased me. But I say that, I really do say that at the end of a very long journey that She's a Super Geek just happened to be part of the catalyst that made it happen, right? Like it was part of what led me into a lot of self-discovery about the really terrible situation that I was in, in my marriage. Um, and, you know, being able to see a future for myself, to be able to see a space for myself where I didn't have to be, you know, what my ex-husband frankly decided that I should be. So I, like, I literally can't imagine, I don't know where I would be in my life. I'm so glad that I started it. It did wonderful things for me. And if it had only done that, it would still be a wonderful and amazing thing that I would continue to do. I'm very proud of the fact that it has um, inspired and encouraged other people as well. And every time I get those messages, it it fills my heart completely to the brim. It's pretty much amazing. It definitely gave me the sense of self and the sense of control over my life, I guess, to make the decision that I made to leave the marriage that I was in that was a very bad, emotionally abusive place for me to be. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious about that if if you don't mind opening up a little bit about that. Is it the nature of play that kind of opened up some things there for you or was it something about the project of of the show itself? 
it's really interesting. I think it was kind of a, a lot of different pieces that fell together because when I started it, I had no idea that that was what I was doing, right? I didn't walk into it with the intention like, this is going to be this wonderful, empowering thing. It's just kind of what happened. But so the, the, the first part is that I had recently gotten back into gaming and gaming was something that was... I'm mincing my words and I don't know that I need to. So part of the form that the emotional abuse that I, um, that I, you know, was in took was in a lot of shame and a lot of humiliation. And that, that was, you know, in large part about things that I enjoyed and was passionate about. So gaming was one of those things that I held onto as hard as I could for as long as I could. But eventually it, as everything else that I was really passionate about, kind of fell by the wayside because I didn't have the mental energy to keep fighting for it and to keep fighting for it in the face of everything else that I was doing. So it started with playing games again and it started with participating in the community again. And that was, you know, there were a couple of, of podcasts basically that I got hooked on. It, it really started with Crit Juice, which is very funny. Um, podcast, which is a bunch of drunk dudes playing D&D. And I'm not like, it's really funny because I don't know if that's a show that I would listen to anymore because I don't actually play that much straight D&D and like that kind of thing. But it's a bunch of improvisers and they're playing D&D and they, they like literally get smashed while they're doing it. But then from there, someone, when I ran out of those episodes, someone was like, oh, have you heard this thing called One Shot? And I was like, no, what is this? And suddenly, like, there's James D'Amato, and he's playing all of the games in a way that I had never experienced. And and running games in a way that I could suddenly understand how it's fun to run games instead of the stereotype of the sort of OSR GM, like, controlling the world and being very, like here is the story and you will follow it, which I had tried to do several times and had failed for me massively. I was like, oh, I could be just doing this without planning. And it was uh, revelatory. And when I met James for the first time, I told him all of this with tears in my eyes and I think he didn't know what to do with me. But um, it was, um, and it was like a, a total side note, right? But it was like, it was very early in one shot days. Like I, I think I was the first person to draw him fan art. I drew fan art of Action Angel Lala, the first Action Angel Lala, right? Like way back when, when it started. Like, um, and so he was, you know, I was like a super fan. And so he was like, I'll run you a game. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. Right. So it's like this thing. It started with the podcast because even though I couldn't play, I felt like I could reconnect with the community. And I could sort of re-experience with other people, even though I wasn't directly playing, I could re-experience what it was like to be involved in games and have that wonderful, connective, supportive experience as a group. Because I do believe in the power of group storytelling to like bring us together as people, right? And to create empathy. And so, and this is a funny story that has been told multiple times before, but my ex-husband's, this part's not funny, perhaps. Uh, my ex-husband's mom um, unfortunately got lung cancer um, and she was very sick and she did pass away. But he went out to stay with them for several months in a row. And what ended up happening is I was sort of at loose ends. And for the first time in my like adult life out of college, I 
was also kind of free to do what I wanted to do because um, we got married right after college. So I, I never really had an adult on my own experience before that time, which is sort of weird to think about, but it's true. And what happened is I hopped on Twitter and there was this random person, the crafty DM that I'd followed because Twitter recommended it. And um, she was going to run a game for these two people and they were looking for one more person. And it was fourth edition D&D, which I'd never played, but I'd been listening to a podcast that played it, right? So I was like, yeah, it's D20. Like, how hard can it be? <laughs> D20 is D20 is D20. And so I was like, hey, I'll play. And that person was Andy, who is now my co-host, right? And that game, like, literally brought me back into gaming. It was really wonderful. And it was actually Christmas of 2014 when... I started really thinking about this, um, which was that I was listening to all of these podcasts all the time. It was all pretty much actual play at that point, but like I couldn't come up with more than like one or two that actually had women on them running the game. And this was early enough, like now you can go online and, and I love this, like do not get me wrong. Now you can go and you can find all of these podcasts that have all women as hosts, all over the place, right? And it's fantastic and it's amazing. I thought about that, but where I was was that I wanted to, I wanted to see myself represented as someone who could lead at the table, and there just weren't that many when it, that that 2014 Christmas when I was thinking about this. Um, the only two shows that I knew of at the time were that Cat Cool was running Campaign, and Veronica was running Cthulhu and Friends. And those were the only two that I could find. And it wasn't for lack of looking. I literally couldn't find them. And I was going out and I was exploring more and more actual plays because I was consuming them really quickly. And I had a, I commuted for two hours a day at the time. So I had lots of car time. And I wanted to have that representation. And I was also really sick of stumbling across podcasts even ones that are pretty big and pretty popular where they would have someone who didn't identify as male on the show as a player. And then stuff would start happening like really icky feeling rape jokes and all of those things. And that person would be laughing. But from my perspective, I could literally hear and feel the physical discomfort that came with that because it was very much the, I don't know how to not be in this situation or how to call this out right now. So I'm going to laugh so that it goes away. But that's a familiar situation. Yeah. I mean, I do it too, but I didn't want to listen to it anymore. <laughs> like I didn't want to be subjected to it in my entertainment. So it was a combination of those things. And then of course, the fact that I was totally a one-shot fangirl and I just wanted to play all the games, like all of them. So I was like, what if we do that? But, you know, I, I can't promise that I will always fill my cast with only people who use she, her pronouns, but I can promise that the person who runs the game always will, right? Because it's, you know, worst case scenario, Andy and I, um, one of us runs the game and like, you know, fulfilled. Yeah. So that's how She's a Super Geek came about. And then from there, it turned into this project that people recognized as something of value, which was not something that I had experienced in a long time, right? I, I hadn't 
been considered to have worth or value beyond what I could provide in terms of, um, you know, emotionally managing my ex-husband um, and basically fulfilling, you know, the role of an adult in the relationship in terms of like always making all the money and always doing all the chores, <laughs> um, like all of that kind of stuff. So it was the first time that a creative, something that was coming just from me and, and, and making something, it was the first time in a very long time that that had been judged as something that was valuable, that I was valuable to go with it. Right. So that, that was a big part of the catalyst of sort of me realizing and understanding that the relationship that I was in, it wasn't my fault that it was bad, that it was just bad and that I needed to leave it. <laughs> so yeah, role-playing games saved me. They saved me. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Senda, that's really beautiful. Yeah. It's, I, I really can't overstress how much I value the community that gaming creates. And I know that it's certainly not a perfect community. And, you know, in the same way that we are struggling, I mean, for me personally, you know, in the US, oh gosh, but kind of across the world as we're struggling with the resurgence of, you know, some very terrible things, you know, it's still, it's still the place that gave me my life back. And it's still the community that really recreated a sense of self for me. I mean, yeah, it means a lot to me. Yeah, I really, <laughs> I did not know that we were going to go there. I'm really, really honored that you shared something like that on my show, Senda. I know, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, um, it's one of those things that I don't talk about the circumstances of my marriage frequently, but I don't do it out of personal discomfort mostly at this point. I do it because it usually makes other people uncomfortable, which is an interesting situation to be in because there is a certain balance to it, right? And and the the flip side to that balance is that other people out there should know that's not what marriage should feel like, right? Like that so when when people say, "Oh, yes, well, marriage is work." Work is one thing. It's not trying forever to achieve a milestone that is unachievable. There is a point at which is unachievable and you have to take care of yourself. I think it also means a lot to people, like maybe more than you realize to hear just that other people that they know have gone through things like that. Because when you're in it, it can very much feel like you're the only one or that it's happening because of something bad about you or, you know, like, like you said earlier, like you feel like it's your fault. And then when you hear that, other people have had it happen to them or are going through it or who got out the other side and they're people who you care about and respect like that can really that can really shift things for people yeah and 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 part of that is you know if you are coming out of an abusive relationship they tend to be isolating to begin with and it can be very difficult to feel like you will have anyone if you leave right and and that is where the gaming community came in for me is that um, suddenly I had a community of people and they weren't his people, right? They were um, people who were exclusively mine. Even if I had basically lost everyone that I had that was a shared friend, which I basically acted like I did for a good part of about a year because I didn't know who was safe and who wasn't, I still felt like I had some place to go and I had people to turn to because 
gaming was something that was exclusively mine. Gosh, people like just just social connections just means everything. Like it it it's such an important important thing in people's health and like it I, I'm not saying it's got to be gaming, but I think maybe something where you are face to face and talking with people and really engaging with them even online face to face, you know, where where there's connection there. You're just really, really hitting home how how profoundly worthwhile that can be in people's lives. Well, and I, I mean, I really, really agree. And it's the end result is that as I have like slipped my way slowly from the media side of being in gaming into like designing games, like the end result is that my fascination is with games that create, um, you know, vulnerability so that we can have intimate moments with each other in a safe, positive way, in a safe, positive environment with other people. Um, because I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And also I feel like that's a gift that in, without even most people knowing it, that's a gift that the gaming community gave me. I guess I'm kind of trying to give it back now, but I mean, it is, it's so much a part of how we as humans function in a healthy mental way to be able to have those kind of connections with people and and to have validation and to not feel isolated. Yeah, just combating social isolation I think is one of the I think is one of the great challenges of our like of the present moment is destroying social isolation. You know, Sendo, I don't always plan specific questions and even when I plan them I don't always get to them, but one of the things I specifically wanted to ask you about was what drove you in your design right? Coming out of podcasting and other kind of creative contributions, what made you want to make games? And I was not expecting the answer to be, well, I want to facilitate real meaningful exchange between people so that they cannot be socially isolated and be healthily connected to each other in beautiful ways. But like, that's, that's beyond you really, really delivered. Well, I will give you the other part of the answer to that question, which is the really funny part, which is, I was convinced that I was never, ever, ever going to design games. Like, I was like, no, 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 no. I just play games and I run games and I'm like the media. I don't design games. And then, gosh, it was uh, September of 2015 and I met a gentleman named Phil Vecchione at Tacticon. And he said, oh, you're fantastic. What are you designing? And I said, oh, I don't design games. And he said, yet. Um <laughs> And he sort of like, I don't know, he made a slippery slope and like, I just sort of started sliding down it. And the next thing I knew I was designing games. It was very funny because I, I, it was something, I think a lot of us uh, understand this and experience it as imposter syndrome, right? Where you're like, oh, well, like, and for me, it was specifically, it was, oh, well, people who design games are like, they, they have much deeper understanding of games than I do. And like, they do all this stuff with mechanics and, and, and they, you know, are professionals and, and all of these things, which are, you know, it's not that these things aren't true. It's just that I can do that too. But also for me, it comes back around to, I am not always really brave if I don't feel confident in starting a new creative endeavor kind of thing. Um, I mean, sometimes I am like I did with She's a Super Geek, like I just plunged ahead, even though I was terrified and everything worked out brilliantly. And I'm very proud of it. <laughs> 
as I am of my games also. But, you know, it's one of those things where when you are not accustomed to being valued for the things that you can create, um, the prospect of creating can become very scary because you don't know, you don't know if you can fail. And the fear of failure, the fear of what failure can bring will stop you from creating because it is more scary that you might fail than exciting that you might succeed. So it's one of those things that I wasn't able to really jump into until I had an environment that felt like it was safe for me to fail in. <laughs> I didn't know we were going this deep this fast, but I'm totally on board. <laughs> well, now, now I'm thinking about like, what do we do? What do we need to do to make places where it's okay to fail? What does that look like? And how do we make it? Right. And and it's really interesting because I can only speak to my very personal experience, right? Which is colored by uh, the relationship that I was coming out of as I started designing games. And, and partnering with Phil on designing has basically created that space for me. Where like, I, it started off and he was writing Hydra Hackers and it started off that, you know, I was just talking to him about it while he was doing it. And then the next thing I knew, he was like, yes, and I gave you developer credits because you've been doing all this development work with me. And I was like, that's what that was. I thought I was just talking to you. And then from there, it was like, I had already been talking to him about games and like, you know, spitballing random ideas and seeing what stuck and all of those things. And suddenly, you know, I could just say, hey, I have an idea for a game. I, I, we had just played Starcross, actually. I loved that. I love that game. That's like one of my favorite actual plays. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, I'm still very pleased with it. I was concerned about how I was concerned about how the tension of pulling the blocks was going to read, like to try to time it right so that it was both tense, but without being a giant pause. and. Um, I'm still pleased with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did good. It was good. But I was talking to him on the phone and this is actually the, the second game and it's it's now very, very new and just got kind of alpha tested. But um, I was talking to him on the phone. I was like, I want a game where instead of making the tower fall, we build the tower up. But if you do that with Jenga blocks, it will be very boring because they're very uniform and you can just build a tower with them, right? And so weird things like that were basically I could just start throwing things at him. I mean, it was like I, I literally was in my car on my way to get my hair cut. And I listened to a song on my playlist that I think it was uh, the Regina Spector song um, or might have been Imogen Heap's Me the Machine. It was something about blending humanity and machines. And Me the Machine is sort of hopeful about machines learning love and like having emotions and becoming more human-like. And um, Regina Spector, what is hers called? I don't remember, but it's significantly more like about slowly becoming one with the machine that is taking over the world. And at the end of the war, like being part of that collective. And between those two, I was like, I really want to make a game about basically humans and then like something weird like an AI or something that you are trying to learn how to communicate with each other not not by language like you you get to have the language to communicate but you have to learn to understand each other 
and like how you function and like be able to build connections and empathy with with each other to be able to create a relationship but that's like so i don't know it's so weird like it's turned into this really cool game it's just a working title right now it's connections but it's a dice building game so we're like what what's a weird shaped thing you could build with well everybody has their polyhedrals with them yeah yeah like and people just kind of idly between turns like to make dice towers like that's a that's an age-old uh, pastime. Tradition. Yes. yes, yeah, tradition. So, so it's it's become this thing, but it's 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 an expression of like building together towards that moment where you have a lasting relationship and a connection with someone, which is that moment of like vulnerability, <laughs> um, and and being being able to play towards some of that intimacy, even even if it's just for your characters, right? I don't, I don't know why that's the game that came to mind, but it is. It's not the first one that we did. But there's obviously, like, this comes back to you want to create moments of, like, of genuine, like, authentic connection between people. And so sometimes the shortcut to doing that is through a, a really intense character intimacy. Speaking from experience. Yeah, I, I, I would think that you would be speaking from experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's really interesting and and I am I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by it because I think it's one of those things that like I said I think it's it's kind of the gift that the community gave me. Um and that gaming gaming gave me because one of the things that kind of happens when you are in whatever kind of abusive relationship someone might be in, mine in particular was mostly just emotional. I shouldn't say just, right? Like that's a thing. We, we we could have a whole discussion there, right? That's one of those things I catch myself on because I'm like, did I just say that again? Yes, I did. That's not okay. So one of the things that comes out of being in an abusive relationship is um, the way that you shut down your own personal emotions. So in particular, what I was experiencing was a bunch of narcissistic gaslighting and, and, and basically not knowing what my actual personal emotions were because I was being told what my emotions were. And so there's part of gaming that it put me back on the path of being able to explore emotions in a safe environment and rediscover them for myself. And I think that's another one of the reasons that I'm really fascinated by like creating vulnerability and intimacy in a safe way with other people to experience together. Because it's like, you should feel your emotions. It's really not good not to. <laughs> I highly recommend, even when they're uncomfortable, it's still better to just have them. It's a thing. So it's also something that I come at from a direction of like, you know, giving people emotions because even when they're not necessarily comfortable emotions being able to feel like that and experience empathy in that way i really think is it's very powerful in terms of our experience just as people and it's very powerful in terms of how we interact with other people and you know it's important weird things happen when you can't feel what you're actually feeling yeah, num numbness. Numbness is death, man. Right. It's not good. And I, I think there can also be value in occasionally experiencing frustration, like occasionally experiencing not getting what you want, occasionally experiencing heartbreak, like 
just getting those sort of small simulated tastes of those emotions so that you know that they're not the end of the world and they don't have to wreck you, I, I think, I, I personally think has value. I, I don't have a lot to back that up, but right now I'm a practitioner, not a researcher. I mean, I think that, you know, you'll probably have some good experiences to to, to turn into research later, but... <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so there's a really interesting TED Talk along these lines that uh, John Arcadian, who is the head gnome at Gnomes Do, did, that he talks about gaming as being being able to be used as like social practice, where most life skills, you get a chance to practice and social skills, you don't, you just have to go do it. And gaming is this thing where you get to practice those social skills without like the pressure of messing up because it's not you. And to me, I think it goes one step further because it's a way that we can kind of practice those reactions and what they feel like and how we process them while still being able to separate them from ourselves when we need to, right? It's a safe way for us to practice what it feels like to be scared or what it feels like to be sad and know what that does to us physically without having to experience it in a really personal way. And I say that because one of the weird things that happens when somebody's gaslighting you about what you're feeling, or even when just society doesn't want you to feel what you want to feel or what your body is telling you that you feel we can get things mixed up, right? Like I had a really strange breakthrough a couple weeks ago that a feeling that I physically had always identified as guilt was actually the feeling of fear. And I had never understood that before. And I think, so I think that it's really useful to be able to create safe spaces for basically experimenting what it feels like to be in these situations and how those emotions actually affect us both mentally and physically. I think the phrase like get in touch with your feelings or being in touch with your emotions sounds really buzzwordy or made up or new agey or something to people, but being able to notice and process uh, and identify one's own emotions is actually like pretty important when you're going to like relate to any other human beings, like being able to say, oh, I'm really angry right now. Okay. When I'm really angry, I do an X, Y, and Z so that it doesn't harm me or others, you know, or I'm really, really like frustrated or whatever, anything, just being aware of what you're feeling and not kind of letting it, like, I think that's part of not letting it drive the bus. And I, I think I don't know. But again, I don't want to be all preaching like people should or like mm, people don't realize like, no, for me personally, it's been very, very useful. I will just say that. And I do think that gaming, playing with these things, I think play, a supported play with these things has been helpful for me in being able to do that. I'm, I absolutely agree. I mean, the whole reason that uh, we ended up on a panel together about safety mechanics at Metatopia <laughs> is because... There is a part of that where I also think we have an obligation to truly make those places to play safe, safe as safe as safe as we can. We can we can baby proof, but that doesn't mean that an adult shouldn't still be watching. <laughs> but part of that, actually, this is an interesting callback that just occurred to me. So part of that is that in the same way that I needed a safe space to be able to fail to start designing games. We have to have 
a safe way to fail at emotions, right? To be able to experience them in a, in a consensual play kind of way. Because if I need to just fail out of doing that and say, nope, never mind, like I have to be able to do that and I have to be comfortable to do that to want to be able to experience it. That's a really interesting framing. The idea of failure, not as a bad thing, but as just like a natural consequence, natural indicator of learning. That moment of failure being, oh, I've actually gone in too deep here, or we've actually stumbled on something that I didn't want. And yeah, and what we're actually trying to do is just kind of put enough put some brakes on things such that when you do go a little bit too fast or you you take a wrong turn or whatever that you can that you can, can pump the brakes. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of framing that. I really like that. I have it's interesting to me that I I do tend to frame a lot of things in terms of acceptance of failure as a positive outcome, right? It may not be the outcome that you desired or expected, but it doesn't have to be a negative outcome. I think that a lot of that comes from being in a place where failure to me was terrifying for a very long time, right? Failure could have been described in an awful lot of different ways, but most of them basically meant, you know, if I didn't correctly anticipate some obscure thing (laughs) that I was supposed to figure out in advance with no communication. So anytime I feel like it's okay for me to not do it perfectly the first time, And whether that's experiencing an emotion or playing a game or writing a game, any of those things, then suddenly I feel like it's okay for me to try. Because even if I fail, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad player. It doesn't mean I'm a bad GM. It doesn't mean I'm a bad game designer. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means I gave it a shot and I'm going to fix it. Yeah, or... Or abandon it and do something else. Right. Hey, good. Good thing I failed quickly on that so that I could see that I didn't want to do it. Excellent. Good. Whew. Got that failure out of the way. Thanks, failure. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, I mean, that's that's how, uh, you know, that's pretty much how we were treating our alpha tests at Metatopia this year is like, uh, this is proof of concept. Like, does this game, is this game worth any more investment of our time than what we've put into it? I don't know. Let's find out if people like it. But I mean, if it had been like, nah, it didn't really fly, then it's like, well, I'm kind of bummed, but let's go do something else. And yeah, better to know right away than to continue pouring your heart into something. Yes, absolutely. Heart and sweat and tears. (laughs) It's a good thing making games is so satisfying at the end. It really is. And, and I mean, and I'm not even that far into it. I mean, I have, so I, I have one game out, right? You, okay. Okay. Come on now. You've got, yeah, you've got Love and Justice. I have Love and Justice, right? Love and Justice is great. And it's a silly little hack of lasers and feelings that I adore. And it plays the other way that I love to play games, which is that I want to just make everyone excited and have good feelings and just like have this wonderful experience where you all just support each other and love each other and have yes, and right? and those feelings <laughs> are just as important to get in touch with and experience and process as as all the other ones. I feel I feel very strongly about that. I agree with you, and so that's that one, and it's great. And um, the other one that's actually floating around out there right now that I wrote is. It was for the 200 word RPG contest and it's called Once More We Shall Ascend. And it's a 200 word RPG disguised as a sort of folk tale in the lines of like Tatterhood and other tales where, you know, 
your hero has to go face like three obstacles and they get bigger every time and, you know, kind of get through them and save their village. Um, and so it's disguised as this little kind of folk tale. But in actuality, it's a dice mechanic that came from me mechanizing how I experience fear and how that has changed over time. So it's like this sneaky little super emotional game for me that plays like a really cute little fairy tale for everyone else. <laughs> that sounds like fairy tales, all right. Deep, deep, terrible, disturbing things with the cute little rhymes. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's probably very appropriate. Um, but it, but it's also one of those weird, like, I built it as a uh, sort of a a light. I don't know how to say this exactly. It's it's the path that I can see, right? I'm not there yet, but it's the path that I know takes me out, that I continue to walk on, where when I started this whole journey, it was very hard for me to control my fear very frequently. And the further that I went down the path, the stronger I got and the easier it is to control it, but it doesn't mean that I always do. So that's why it's a mechanic because you don't always win, right? <laughs> like how we process it, but it gets easier to not let it control me. And so it's a game in which you can't die. The, the, the negative consequence of this game is that it can become harder to deal with your fear again because you fall backwards down that path a little ways before you move forward again, because it's not always a straight line. But it is basically a game of you have a fear die that's a D6 and you have your self die, which starts as a D6. And then every scene that you go through, it gets bigger. So you're rolling them against each other and there's always a chance that your larger die, even if it's a D12, your D12 could still roll lower than your fear die. But the chances that it will are much lower, right? So it's my sneaky little thing. And it, it's really interesting how creating models for how we experience emotions like that is really helpful. Do you think it, it kind of helped you get a handle on things? Well, I don't know if it necessarily helped me get a handle on things. It certainly has given me moments where I've been not in a wonderful place and then been like, oh man, you know, my D8 just rolled like a five. That sucks. And like, just have that moment where I'm like, wow, I really mechanized this and that's cool. And I see what's going on. And I know that even though I'm having this moment now, like I can get out of it and move forward, right? Because it is very much a game about moving forward, despite the fact that you may be afraid of things. So it's interesting. I, I don't know if it specifically has helped me get out of it, but it certainly is one of those times that I've like literally been driving in my car and been like having a, a fear reaction moment because of whatever was going on. And then like thought to myself, oh my gosh, I did such a great job designing that mechanic. That's exactly what it feels like right now. And it's actually really pleasing then. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, you know, different perspective on it. And it, and it gives me that um, sort of broader knowledge of the path forward, which is exactly what I wanted the game to do. And then it becomes like this letter to my future self where I'm like, but don't forget, like you're still going to keep going forward. And if your die is smaller right now, it's going to get bigger again, right? Like it's going to get easier to beat that D6 again. I don't know what other people see when they read it, but that's... <laughs> that was... But it kind of doesn't matter sometimes, does it? Like it's kind of like, oh, you played that and you had fun? Cool, whatever. I 
I worked some of my stuff into a thing and and I'm going to move on with my life. Do with this as you will. Yeah, and it is kind of that. And I'm kind of fine with that. Now, is is that how you're feeling about about Turning Point, this game that you're making uh, with Phil Vecchion? Yeah, so Turning Point is, it's kind of an amalgamation of those things, right? It is a way to create vulnerability and empathy at the table. And it is also a way to describe the difficult decisions that we have to make as people. So it's, I really like this game. I'm very, very proud of it. It's a way for us to collectively experience the difficulty of making some of the decisions that we can be faced with as humans, right? And and it's based on a series of dilemmas, which are the difficult decisions that you're facing as a character. And right now we've been playtesting it with a set of four which are like, do you leave your lucrative, solid day job that is sucking your soul to do your dream job, which might be totally financially insecure? Or your partner wants to have a baby, do you have a baby with them, right? So there are these kinds of decisions. One of the most interesting things that I did, I I actually have a dilemma that I've written that neither me nor Phil has ever run because... I don't know if emotionally either of us is really up to it, (laughs) Um, which is an interesting place to be with something that I wrote, like it's a game and I wrote it, never been played. It's, it's a dilemma about, do you leave an emotionally abusive relationship? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, Which is, so it was very, very interesting because I sat down and I wrote it and I wrote like, what are the decision points? Like, what are the things that make you stay? or make you go. And because how the game works is you play through a series of scenes, not necessarily directly to do with your decision moment. They can happen anywhere in the timeline of this person's existence. So it might've happened when they were like seven, or it could have happened a couple of years ago, or it could have happened yesterday. But you play through these scenes that have two kind of opposing, not really opposing, but opposite emotions attached to them. And then you kind of see which way the scene steers, which of those emotions it kind of leans into and how it resolves. And then that emotion is the one that you as a character are taking with you into making this final decision at the end of the game. So it was basically sitting down for me and writing down like the two opposing feelings like that, almost that cognitive dissonance, the two pieces of me that were trying to figure out what was going on and which way things were going to go for five different, you know, instances of uh, sets of emotions to have scenes about that would create an end result for whether the character that these players create would leave that relationship or not. I'm scared to play it because I don't know how it would feel to me if the character didn't leave (laughs) Um, because that gets very like extra super personal. So it's interesting that one, that one has never been played. It's something where what we're intending to do, I mean, I will just throw out there, right? Just throw it to the world. Um, We are intending to kickstart this um, in spring of 2019. So if this sounds interesting, like keep your eyes out for it. And what's going to happen is Phil and I have written a bunch of dilemmas, um, but we're going to basically start bringing on other designers from other backgrounds who have personal experience with different difficult decisions than we have experience with so that we have a whole broad range of basically 
tools to build empathy for people in different situations, um, which I think is wonderful. And I, I say it like it's an empathy building engine a lot, and it is kind of that. It's also a very fun and entertaining game, I promise. <laughs> um, I don't want to make it sound like, I don't know, In in it's not work, right? It is an exploration of human emotions and sort of some of the psychology of how we understand humans to make decisions, if that makes sense. Do you think yeah. it's, it helps you understand how you yourself make decisions? Yeah. That, I mean, so that was the really interesting part about taking my personal experience of deciding to leave an, an abusive relationship and write it down on paper and basically mechanize it so that people could kind of have to make those same sort of mini decisions or have those mini experiences along the way. They're not going to have the same experiences that I had um, because that's not the game. The game is not play through Senda's life. The game is, you know, um, it's easier for me to quote the ones that I've played a bunch of times. So like um, in the, uh, in, let's see, like um, there's one about being a, a kinky person right? Called My Kinky Life. And um, it is a dilemma about deciding if you just like suppress your identity and stay in the relationship that you're in, or if you decide that you can't live without that. And it, it means that you're probably leaving your current partner. So there's one of the scenes, for example, in that one, which is about acceptance versus rejection. And it could be played literally at any time in the person's life. So it could be like, you're in high school and maybe you still play with dolls or something. And you might have a scene where you and, and another friend or something are in your room and they discover it. And it's like, how do they react? Like, what does that leave you with? Does it leave you with a feeling of like, oh, that's cool. It's fine. Like, I accept you. Or does it leave you with a feeling of like rejection and they go to school the next day and they tell everybody and everybody laughs at you? Because your experience in that very different scenario is still going to affect how you feel revealing to someone or making a decision about something where you feel like you could get ridiculed or rejected for it, right? If you have a past history of being accepted for being unique, you are more likely to make those decisions. Right. Yeah. The, all, all of that is going to feed into how you weigh different possibilities and risks in the future. Yeah, exactly. And so it's basically it's basically playing through that and then and then coming to a final decision based on both those scenes that you played out, the five scenes that you play as the character, but also like there's an element that I really like about it, which is called heartstrings. And what they are is basically a means for me as a player on a meta level to say, this is really connecting with me. And so I can... I can take a heartstring, like they're just a pile of, of um, chips in the middle of the table. When we play, they're shaped like hearts because it's heartstrings and so they're awesome. But like you could use anything, right? Like the markers. And so when you react to the scene or when you feel a personal connection to the scene or when you appreciate what the people in the scene are doing, then you take a heartstring. And at the end of that scene, we collect all the heartstrings and count them up and what that does is that gives that scene weight in that person's history. So in comparison to the other scenes, how important was it? 
And its importance is based on how we as people and players connected to that scene. How strongly did we feel it? And so it doesn't only matter what emotions we come away with as the ones that we experienced in our lives. It also matters which ones of those were stronger and more powerful and made more of an impact on that that particular character as a person. So it has that as well. And I like it because it's a means for, you know, you're both, everyone gets an opportunity to be the actual character, but you're not on the hot seat the whole time to be that character. So you kind of get to pause and breathe, but in pausing and breathing, you are still actively involved in connecting to the emotions that are at play at the table to the extent of your comfort zone, right? Um, because when you're not directly in that, you have a lot of control over you know, how strongly you're willing to invest in that scene or how strongly it's playing for you based on your personal experiences. And being able to basically like actively react to that, even though you're not necessarily always an active participant in at any given second. You still are, you're still there, you know, like not everybody has to be talking and contributing ideas, but man, when you're playing a game, people got to be there. They got to be present. Yeah. It's a reward. It's also a thing where you just get rewarded for active listening because you get to take a chip, right? <laughs> like... <laughs> It's my sneaky way <laughs> to reward you for participating. <laughs> I know how passionate you are about this project. And it was really, really fun talking with you about it at Metatopia and getting to present that panel, which we talked about earlier, because it was it was a good one. I'm, I'm really looking forward to being able to share that audio because I think it was really pretty high quality stuff. I agree. I have a funny story. I don't know if we have time for it, but I have a pretty hilarious story about it, actually. Tell me more. <laughs> so this is this is a thing I have to I have to start this story by telling you that this is a thing that has happened to me multiple times now. And I think that it's like also a survival mechanism for um, imposter syndrome, Senda, right? So there's a thing where um, I don't always, I'm really bad at connecting names and faces, especially if it's just people that I may have glancingly interacted with on the internet, or like I may have played a game that they wrote, but I, so like I know their name, but I have no idea what they look like. So I have a history, both at Metatopia last year and then at Origins, and then this year, this is this year's story of not recognizing people like when they're just there and then finding out later who they were. And the funny part is that because I didn't know who they were, I acted like an awesome human being who knew what they were talking about and wasn't intimidated at all. Right. And then I find out later and go, oh, my gosh, I think I know where you're going with this, but I still want you to say it. I bet you do. <laughs> So we sat on that panel and and there was a good audience for that panel. There was a lots of people. It was very exciting. Um, I think that was the biggest group of people that I talked to all weekend. And I did like all the panels, <laughs> so many panels. And yeah, I absolutely looked out and I saw Kat Tobin sitting there and I had just met her earlier that weekend. And I was like, cool. And there was some somebody sitting next to her and I was like, cool. And we were really getting into that discussion of like safety and uh, culture of safety and the, the tool that Phil and I have built into our game as the actual tool that is visible, I should say, because there are some less visible mechanics in there for safety, but uh, uh, talking about using the OK check-in at the table versus in LARPs. And 
so we finished that panel and we all went our separate ways and the convention sadly ended and Phil and I were on our way out the door for dinner and he said to me, uh, yeah, that was pretty cool that John Stravopoulos was sitting in the audience and I was like, what now? <laughs> Did I just talk safety at the inventor of the X card for like an hour? Did that just happen? And he was like, yeah, and he was sitting right next to Kat Toman and I was like, are you serious? <laughs> Anyway, so that's my funny story for safety at Metatopia, that panel that cracks me up. I will never be able to uh, talk about that panel without thinking about that. That was my that was my Senda doesn't recognize people moment for Metatopia this year. That's really good. And I'm super glad, actually, that if if it would have made you nervous to recognize him, that you didn't, you know, like that you could just talk and that was fine. I definitely I looked out there and I saw John Stavropoulos and I was like, dang. Um, I have maybe I should put away all my all my crap talk about the X card and how how it's bad. No, JK, I put it in both my published games. But if John John, if you're listening, that second part was JK actually, and I'm trolling you because <laughs> you trolled me by coming to that panel. Seriously, right? <laughs> it got even funnier because we went out to dinner. We went to the Persian place across the street from the hotel, and we sit down. And I'm looking at the menu, and Phil looks over my shoulder directly behind me, and he says, "Oh wow, look who's sitting at that table over there." And I think it was Brand Robbins, Moira, and John Stravopoulos. <laughs> I was like, Are you serious. <laughs> Anyway, so I did finally, like, actually meet him and shake his hand and stuff, but it was pretty funny. That's, well, but, you know, there's only so many of us, you know, doing doing work on building safety mechanics and stuff in, in games. We got to we gotta look out, be there, meet each other, shake, shake some hands, make some pals. I know, have conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Talk to each other, ideally. Right. Check in yeah. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of conversations, this was a lovely one. Yes. And it was so, so, so awesome having you on the show. I know everyone's going to be looking forward to Turning Point when it comes out next year. And everyone, if they, for some baffling reason, haven't already listened to She's a Super Geek, they might go do that now. Uh, but in general, where can people find you if they want to hear what you're up to, what you're working on, what you're saying? Um, well, I spend most of my time on Twitter. Uh, so it's mostly all Twitter handles. So uh, She's a Super Geek is at SAS Geek Podcast. And uh, my other podcast is Pandas Talking Games, uh, which I do with Phil Vecchione um, because he's like gaming mogul man, right? And I was like, okay. He was like, you know what you're talking about. We should do a gaming podcast. And I was like, I don't know what I'm talking about. He's like, yes, you do. You're going to do a podcast with me. And I was like, okay. That one is um, at Pandas Talk Games and it's very silly and there are many outtakes, um, which pleases me a lot. And then you can find just me and like information about all my stuff and what I made for dinner, which tonight was ramen at I-D-E-L-L-A-M-I-T-H-L-Y-N-N-D. It's Idella Mifflin, and it's sort of a running gag that it's unpronounceable and unfindable. So you can find it from either of the other Twitter handles as well. <laughs> no problem. Links, links in the show notes. Links aplenty. Yeah. And then uh, the only other thing I'll just throw out there is um, you can find She's a Super Geek also at sasgeek.com. And the network that I'm on, Misdirected Mark Productions, is at misdirectedmark.com. And all the announcements about Turning Point and future games along those lines are all going to be coming from EncodedDesigns.com. Nice. That's a that's a good summary. You've you've plugged before. I've plugged I can before. hear it. You, you know what? I even missed one. You want to know the one that I missed? What'd you miss? 
I missed, you can also find my articles about once a month on Gnome Stew, right? Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, don't miss those because they're pretty good. A lot of good GMing advice up in Lots there on the stew. There. In the stew, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Tons of good GMing stuff there. <laughs> I have some really good fellow blogger authors that I write with who are truly amazing. Yeah, so check it out. <laughs> cool. I have one more thing. It is a, uh, this is 0% pressure, totally opt-in thing. But do you have like five minutes to play a game with me? Uh, heck yeah. Okay, cool. One second. I'm so excited now. I don't know what's going to happen. All right. So don't know if you know this, but the One Shot Podcast Network has a Patreon and people who support that Patreon at a certain level or above get access to what we call the secret archive. And that's just a bunch of stuff. All the shows add stuff to it, like about once a month-ish. And we'll just put outtakes and extra content, secret games, fun tidbits, treats, sweets, hot eats. I'm going to be in the secret archive because that's like amazing. <laughs> yeah, you, you will actually. So people who are listening, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, if you want to hear Senda and I play a very short demo round of my upcoming game for the Queen, oh gosh, uh, yes. you can do that. Uh, just go to Patreon.com and search for One Shot RPG. Check it out, and if you if you back it, you'll be able to access this recording in the next uh, next couple of weeks. I will add. I will add one thing. I've been backing it for years. It's great. It's good stuff. <laughs> Do you do you enjoy it? Is it good stuff in there, Senda? A wise investment? It's a wise investment because you know what got me originally was the extra campaign episodes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Unmissable. There's there's a lot of good stuff in there campaign-wise already, and that that's not slowing. That's not stopping. Thanks again to Senda for joining me, and as always, thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear Senda and I play that little demo of For the Queen, you can find it at patreon.com slash oneshotrpg, along with a bunch of other really cool stuff if you sign up. Backstory is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Alex Roberts, and produced by the very talented Alex Sisk. You can go to oneshotpodcast.com and find more great RPG-related shows like Design Doc. Join hosts Hannah Schaefer and Evan Rowland as they redesign their first role-playing game. Design Doc is an experiment in public participatory analog game design. It's fun, it's messy, and you're invited along for the ride. You can check out all that and more at oneshotpodcast.com. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can hear more at soundcloud.com slash U-J-I-C-O, or find them on YouTube and Spotify and wherever else you get your chill beats. Talk to you later, friends.